I'll open up your Bibles to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. Again, as I'm getting used to this uh, new Bible this morning anyway, I'll try to see if I can remember where everything is. But 1 Peter, we're continuing our look at chapter 1. Now, I mentioned last week that uh, if we didn't finish verses 14 through 16, there were four points that we would just drop the last two points uh, because they are major themes in the, in the epistle. Um, but as I reflected on that a bit more, I realized that I didn't want to do that. And so we are going to actually go back to verses 14 through 16 this morning and pick it up where we left off last week. And even still, we'll have to leave many things unsaid uh, for the future. So we'll be looking again this morning at verses 14 through 16 uh, from this great epistle of Peter to those who are suffering and he's unfolding to them and to us the glory of our hope uh, in Christ. And the main idea of these verses, just to remind us from last week, is is this, that Christian hope and God's salvation is marked by the holiness that reflects God's character. In other words, the hope that, that God gives to us in Christ, the hope that... Paul himself, when he was giving his defense between the Rome, uh, before the Roman leaders, said that he lives always or seeks always to live with a clear conscience because of the hope that is laid up for him. Peter is reflecting that same idea, namely that our hope in Christ, the realities of our salvation, the glories of the grace that we've received in Christ and all that he has accomplished for us, should produce in our lives comfort, encouragement, and it should produce most foundationally holiness. Holiness. And that's what he addresses right at the beginning. The first 12 verses are all an unfolding of the reality of our hope. And then beginning in verse 13, as we've mentioned with that, therefore, he begins giving commands. In other words, he takes the truth and now he's applying it. He's... He's telling us how that is to work itself out in our lives. And it is by fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us and living holy lives. Let me read and read together with me verses 14 through 16 of 1 Peter. And then we'll briefly recap what we looked at last week and move forward and finish this section. Uh, begin with me, actually begin in verse 13. We'll read from verses 13 down to verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but... Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is foundational to the Christian life. This is foundational to our Christian hope, that we who know God, we who in fact have been born again, which is how Peter began this section here in verse 1, those who have by God's great mercy, been caused to be born again to a living hope, who share his life, eternal life in Christ, are to reflect that life by the holiness of our lives. We looked at first week, and so as I said, well, just briefly to recap, we looked at first week then that holiness or obedience is the ultimate or the true mark 
the essential mark, the essential reality of a child of God, of a child of God. Again, by way of reminder, holiness, when it refers to God, he says, be holy as I am holy, has two aspects to it. The idea is separation. It is to say that God is holy and that he is separate from his creation. He stands outside of it. He created all things out of nothing by the word that he spoke. He brought all things into existence. He's not a part of creation. He is greater than his creation. He's other than his creation. That is God's transcendence. That's God's transcendence. That is an aspect of God that we, we cannot reflect. That is what belongs to God and to God alone. It's what makes him God. Then there's the other part of holiness, and it is God's separation from sin. He's separate from all that is evil. In fact, the very definition of sin, the very definition of evil, is that which fails to conform to God's perfect holiness. It's the moral aspect of God's holiness. It's his righteousness. It's his purity. It's everything that is good and right is in God, and it is God. And so that is what we are then called to reflect, this moral holiness of God, this purity, this spiritual purity that reflects his own nature. This holiness, of course, was lost in the fall, and we can't do that on our own, but God's redeemed people have always had that command laid before them. And so secondly, just as a reminder of the context of this command, and and we need to grasp this to fully understand the weight of it. And particularly the weight of this command in light of the new covenant, in light of the realities of the fulfillment of God's promises in sending the Messiah in his atoning death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father, and his sending of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, where this command comes from, in the book of Leviticus primarily, where it's mentioned in several places, in which Leviticus is a detailed explanation of the law, how Israel is to worship him, how they are to be holy and separate and distinct from the nations around them, how they are to demonstrate that they are the people of God that has been redeemed by the God who created all things. Remember, the covenant begins with Genesis 1.1, an explanation that God is God and God alone. Now, when God called out after forming Israel as a nation... He called them out of Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there he punctuated the glory and the holiness of the law that he was to give them. In other words, how they were to live before him, this God who has called them out from among the nations. Particularly out of the bondage of Egypt. And when he gave them the law at Mount Sinai, he did so with great glory. We looked at that, with thunder and the trumpets and the peals. So much so that after he had given his law, that the people said to Moses that, don't let God speak to us anymore, you speak to us, because they were afraid and trembling. And and Moses said, God has appeared to you in such glory and such power, so that you would not sin. So that you would not sin. And then he goes on and he continues to explain the law. And then the most dramatic or the most overwhelming reality then of this relationship that God entered into with his people is not merely that he gave his law, but it is that, as we looked at, God dwells among his people. This holy God who called them out, this holy God who created all things, this holy God who destroyed the world with a flood because of sin, is the same God who is going to dwell among his people. 
And so a part of the worship then of Israel was that God gave sacrifices and he gave the priesthood. It was through these, the establishment of these, that sinful man, i.e. the nation of Israel, could approach God in worship and not be consumed and not be destroyed. The sacrifice was there, of course, anticipating Christ, but it was a means of showing that sin demands death. The priesthood acted as a mediator of the people to approach God and God to the people. And to emphasize the fact that holiness was to be the mark of worship, God killed at the very beginning of temple sacri- or tabernacle sacrifices at that point, Nadab and Abihu. You remember that they brought to him a sacrifice that was different than what he commanded. Fire came out from the tent. It consumed them. They died on the spot. And then God told Aaron not to weep or to mourn for his children. He says, by all who come near me, I will be treated as holy and I will be honored among the people. And so God was right at the beginning of establishing the worship of the nation, emphasizing that he will be treated as holy. He will not tolerate sin. Of course, Israel did sin, and that is really the the history of the nation of Israel is their, their sin, the discipline of God, the deliverance of God when they cry out to him, they're falling back into sin, they're crying out to God, God's deliverance and so forth. That's the book of Judges as you're familiar with. And it wasn't, and so God after their final, uh, one of the most significant judgments, removed his glory and significantly the glory of God is not set again to be among men until the appearance of Christ. Until the appearance of Christ. In Christ, there was the unique presence of God among men. His glory dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And significantly about the ministry of Christ is that it was marked by a unique presence of the Holy Spirit. A unique presence of the Holy Spirit. John 1.32 says that he would be recognized. In other words, John the Baptist would recognize Christ as the Messiah by this. The Spirit remained upon him. The Spirit remained upon him. Christ being sinless, being both God and man, sinless in his humanity, went to the cross and upon the completion of his work of atonement, the final sacrifice for sin, was raised from the dead ascended back to the Father, and in Acts 2.33 received the promise of the Father in the pouring out of the Spirit. That was the promise, the Holy Spirit. And so God's presence with this finished work of Christ is no longer with His people in the tabernacle, no longer with His disciples in the person of the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but is now in His people by the Spirit in a way that He had never been before. That was the promise. The helper will come. He is with you. He will be in you. So that's the glory of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit. The final sacrifice for sin. No longer is there a temple as the focus of the worship of God's people. But he says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God? So the God of Israel is the God who indwells and inhabits his people by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Now we were discussing last uh, Sunday 
a couple of Sebastian and I think Joe. And it was, as we were talking about uh, this one point, it was brought out that, that that wasn't made as clear as I wanted it to be last week. So let me just emphasize why that's so significant. It's significant because not only the command, be holy as I am holy, bears such awesome significance on the people of God. But here's what I want you to recognize, at least here and in terms of the new covenant. It is this, that the God who met Moses in the burning bush, the God who led Israel out of Egypt, the God who gave his law at Sinai, the God who put Nadab and Abihu to death, is the God who atoned for sin at the cross, is the God that is within you. That same God that Nadab and Abihu were put to death because they approached him wrongly is the God that abides in you. Is the God that abides in all of his people who are united to Christ. That is the glory of it. And so therefore, holiness is to be the mark of God's people. It is a necessary mark of being God's children. It's a necessary mark of being God's children. No different from the old covenant to the new covenant except for this. That those who are in the new covenant are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, are united to Christ by faith, who is our righteousness, and are necessarily identified by the mark of obedience, by the mark of holiness. Now, I'm not going to get through all of my notes here, but let me just give you a, a few points here. And this is, again, by way of reminder. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, speaking to the crowds, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And this could be repeated over and over. Obedience, then, is the mark of life in Christ. And holiness finds its greatest expression, as Jesus said, in what one loves. Holiness is really about what you love, what you love from the inside. The heart of the law, which has as its base, be holy as I am holy, is this. What? You know it. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, like the great commandment. It is to love God. At the, at the heart of holiness is a love for God. A love for God that is now centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and God's salvation in Him. Something Peter will get to later. So the first mark then of holiness, and of being a child of God, is holiness as obedient children. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lust. The second thing that we began last week I didn't finish, and I'll have to go through this much quick, more quickly, is this, that holiness is first a matter of the inner person. So holiness is a matter of the inner person. Holiness is not merely an external reality, and indeed that is secondary. The heart of holiness is who you are on the inside, who you are on the inside. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 11 of Peter chapter 2, I urge you as alien strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. That is where the battle of holiness takes place. The mind, the affections, motivations, intentions, the will. The very 
The very condemnation of false religion is that it deals only with externals. You will well remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So these are the, the kind of religion that says, I can not commit adultery, but I can lust for a woman in my heart all day long. Right? That I cannot do the outward deed, but inwardly I can still love sin. And yet, that is not true religion. It's not true life. As a matter of fact, that's not only a first century Jewish thing. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 5, and here, beloved, he's describing professing church. Okay? Here's what he says. Men will be lovers of self. And note, note the internal language here again, right? Sin flows out of the heart. It flows out of the heart. What comes out in our life is what's already been nourished and fostered in our heart. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, here it is, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And so... The very rebuke of false religion is to have some outward form of worship while inwardly denying the transforming power of God in Christ. So Paul then says, where Peter begins this section uh, in verse 13, as we noted, prepare your minds for action. Be ready to engage at the level of the heart those things that would pollute or corrupt the holiness of God and his holy work in you. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. And again, as was mentioned, it begins on the inside. Uh, notice what he said. Again, this is a reminder, and then we'll move on here. But he, notice what he says in verse 14. Don't be conformed to your former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. That is, your ignorance before there was an internal sense of the glory of God. Your ignorance which was marked by darkness. Your ignorance that was marked by spiritual death. Your ignorance that was marked by no fear of God. No hatred of sin. No desire for holiness. No love of the brethren. No delighting in his truth. That marked your former life, but that is not the reality of your new life. Your new life, rather, is marked by just the opposite. So Peter again says, your time has already passed in chapter 4, verse 3. It's sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued, of course, of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And so at the very beginning, then, of this call to holiness is the real experience of regeneration, of new life, of new birth. Because all of that changes when one is born again. Where there was ignorance, there is now understanding. Where there was darkness, there is now light. Where there was blindness, there is now sight. Again, all those truths about God that were unimportant or unbelievable are now the content of our trust. Christ, who was not desirable, is our greatest love and the treasure for which we would forsake everything to gain if you know him. 
holiness that was ignored and hated is now our pursuit. And so, of course, that lays before us, is that the reality of your heart? Is that the reality of your heart? Does this command of God find any provoking reality in you towards obedience and worship and love and dealing with sin? Or is sin merely merely something that you try to avoid to keep up appearances, to avoid its consequences? Or is it something that your soul actually abhors and hates because of having tasted the kindness of God in Christ? So regeneration then begins this internal battle for holiness in every Christian. It's a battle because at the entrance of new life, there is still yet the reality of our remaining sin. We're not yet what we are called to be. Paul said it this way, I know that there is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. I find then that the principle or the law, that evil is present in me. It's something that he still understood. It's something that he still realized was present in him that he must fight and that he must battle throughout life. So if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that, you know, you just, we sing that song. Somebody mentioned this to me. I don't remember who it was. That that song that says, you know, now I am happy all the day. And this person said, I'm not happy all the day. (laughs) You know, he struggles. And that is the reality. And so, and they came to the same conclusion. The idea there is that's the ideal. That is, and it speaks of the joy that we should have as Christians. But we are as Christians, if you are a Christian, you know that internal struggle with sin. You know the internal struggle to be holy. And those things within your heart, within your affections that oppose that, it seems like at every turn, that are fighting against that pursuit. But you know that. And in fact, if you have that battle, that's actually an encouragement of salvation. Right? The, the, the worry would be if you're not in that battle. The worry would be if unholiness does not concern you and break you and drive you again to the cross for grace. But if you are in that battle and you are fighting the battle of internally with sin because of a love for Christ, then that is a great encouragement to the fact that God has done a work of grace in you. But, and now this is where we want to continue. And... I want to finish today. We won't make this three parts. So I will uh, be editing a lot as we go along here. But let me note this. That when God regenerates us, when God gives us new life, when the Spirit gives us life, when He breathes into us life, and that begins this battle with sin... Uh, that's remaining in us, it is not as though God simply leaves us alone to work this out on our own. And, And sometimes, unintentionally, Christians, if we don't understand that, can have sort of that deistic idea, you know, the idea that God started things and then just left them to run on his own. He has no personal involvement with his creation. Nothing could be further from the truth. God did not simply give us a call to holiness, save us from sin's consequences, give us a call to holiness, and then leave us on our own. No, again, as I've already mentioned, the great wonder of the new covenant is that he gives as well the Spirit, the Spirit of God, who not only regenerates, 
but he fills, he seals, he indwells, he brings us in union with Christ, he teaches, he illuminates, and so much more. But the particular ministry that Peter focuses on in this letter is established right in verse 2 at the beginning. Uh, that according to the foreknowledge of God, by sanctification of the Spirit. By sanctification of the Spirit. So those who are in Christ, sprinkled with His blood, called by the foreknowledge of God, have been sanctified and are being sanctified by the Spirit. Now, hang with me here. But there are, let me just put this for a context. There are three parts of sanctification that are recognized in Scripture. I'm just going to mention them to you and then focus on one. And many of you are already familiar with this. But let me repeat them for us. There is the idea of positional sanctification. That is the reality that when someone is in Christ, they are effectually called by God, by faith, in Christ, including the reality of regeneration. You are set aside. Sanctification uh, as as its root, the, the word holiness, it is to be separated. It is to be separated under God. You belong to God. You are in Christ. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. It is why all Christians, position of sanctification is why all Christians are called, what? Saints. Saints. You know, we have a lot of churches that saint so-and-so, saint so-and-so. But every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a saint. The noun form of that word for holiness is what is used to describe Christians. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 1-2, and if you're familiar at all with the book of 1 Corinthians, these were not a holy group of people. And yet, God calls them saints. He introduced as this letter, but through Paul, in this way. Having been sanctified, a past reality with ongoing result, having been sanctified in Christ, you are saints by calling. So every one of you is a saint who is in Christ. That is your positional sanctification. A second part of sanctification is the perfected sanctification. That is what we will experience at the end when, we're, when we die. And we are ultimately then down the road in God's timing resurrected. And we are in his presence in new bodies. And we are fully freed from the presence of sin. That, that of course happens immediately at death. The new bodies in the resurrection. But he says this... Uh, in Colossians 1.22, He has now reconciled us in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So when you die, if you are in Christ and you stand before Him, God is going to treat you according to the position that you already have in Christ and declare you and you will be shown to be in Christ holy and blameless. Now, we won't travel on that or speak about that much, but that should be overwhelming because if you're a Christian, you know I am anything but holy and blameless. I've got all kinds of blame and guilt in my heart, but in Christ, that's the grace of God. You are considered holy and blameless, not because of you, but because of Christ. He is our righteousness. It's a righteousness that's outside of us, that's declared to us because of Christ. That's 1 John 3, 2. The third part of it is then progressive is progressive sanctification. We're positionally in Christ. We will be perfected in Christ in the end. But right now we're in what is called progressive sanctification. That is the ongoing present work of the Holy Spirit in His children, those who are true Christians, making them and forming them into the image of Christ. 
And again, this is the, an internal work of the Spirit. This is an internal work of the Spirit. It works in the realm of the inner man, again, in our thinking and in our affections. How does he do this? Negatively, the Holy Spirit works this in us, this sanctification, which is what Peter is talking about here, being holy, through conviction of sin, hatred of sin, and the misery of sin. Again, this is the negative part. He is the Holy Spirit. This is a title as well as a description. It is his name as well as it is a definition of the very nature of his being. He is God. And he is holy. And he searches the depths of God. And he is the one who is manifest and present in us. He is the Holy Spirit who was in the temple that killed Nadab and Abihu. He is God who is holy, who is at work in us, conforming us to the holiness to which we have been called. In Galatians 5.17, he puts it this way, the spirit sets himself against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that you may not do the things that you please. God, if you belong to him, will not allow you to revel in sin. He will not allow you to flippantly go on in sin. If you can flippantly go on in sin with no internal struggle with it and shame before Christ for your sin and with no discipline of God, then it is in fact a testimony that, and the writer of Hebrews says, you are illegitimate children. But for believers, when we sin and we who have the Holy Spirit, we're made miserable by that sin. We lose fellowship with God. We have conviction. We have shame before God for our sin. And it, it is what compels us to go back to the cross and go back to remember grace and to ask for forgiveness and restoration of our fellowship with Him, to walk obediently with Him. The Holy Spirit sets Himself against that sinful reality in us. Uh, one writer said this, an old writer, you'll get from his words, This hatred cannot be, in other words, this hatred for sin, cannot be but intense, for as, as, as the more any creature is sanctified, the more he is advanced in the abhorrence, that is the hatred, I love that word, the abhorrence of that which is contrary to holiness. Therefore, God being the highest, most absolute, and infinite holiness, does infinitely and therefore intensely hate unholiness. As his nature is infinite, so must his abhorrence be. In other words, God hates sin. He abhors it. And that is why in other places, but in Romans 12, he says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And so the Spirit works negatively uh, in us towards holiness by opposing the reality of sin that is in us, setting himself against it. Paul says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. And this grief that we bring to the Holy Spirit is translated into a loss of fellowship, as I mentioned, conviction of sin, a sullied conscience, a lack of joy, and a lack of assurance. So if you lack assurance, one place to look to begin is if there's any unconfessed sin in your life. That's negatively. Positively, how does the Holy Spirit work in us? He works in us then, on the contrary, to love righteousness to love holiness, to what is, love what is good and is pure before God's eyes, what is true. And he works in us 
by giving us the spiritual power to obey God. The spiritual power to obey God, to obey Christ. Not only the power, but the motivation to do so. In Romans 14, Paul says this, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Holy Spirit works for towards. In Galatians, you're familiar with this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, can you say it in your mind at least with me, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There is, a, there is a beauty to holiness. There's a delightfulness about holiness. There's a joy in holiness. And all of these things were perfectly modeled in Christ. And so be holy as he is holy. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in also all of your behavior is the environment and the reality and the ongoing uh, Desire of the child of God to be holy as he is holy. When we walk in holiness, there is joy, there is fellowship with God, there is usefulness in the kingdom, there is unity among the beloved, there is love, there is love. Holiness and love are inseparable, inseparable. As I mentioned at the beginning, Holiness is really first a matter of what we love, what our soul most deeply loves. What do you most deeply love? What, if anything, is there within your heart, and as we come to the Lord's table, you'll have opportunity to reflect on this, that you don't want to give up in order to have greater fellowship with God. If you're yet a Christian or not yet a Christian, What is it that your soul loves more than the salvation that is offered in Christ? If you're not yet a Christian, then that will be your downfall. Regardless of what you gain in this world, you will forfeit your soul. And so God offers the true holiness in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. True forgiveness, true grace. And yet even as Christians, for those of us who do know him, sometimes we can be weak in the battle because we don't yet really believe this. We don't yet really believe that holiness is the greatest foundation for our joy and our peace. And so we flirt with sin. We flirt with sin. Sin becomes more attractive to us. The, least, the lower the glory of God in our hearts, the greater the wonder and the pleasure and the attraction of sin. The greater the glory of God and the knowledge of God, the lesser the attraction and the draw of sin. It's that simple. Now, I want to quickly go through this. How do we grow in holiness? How do we grow in holiness? Well, I'm going to just give you a few thoughts here. I'm going to mention, I think, five things. And I'm going to mention these quickly for time's sake because I want to, I want to get to the last uh, two points. But here's, how do we grow in holiness? Uh, I'm going to mention a few verses. You can write them down. I won't, I won't read all of them. First is this. How do we grow in holiness? How do you pursue this? How do you obey this command that Peter gives us to be holy as he is holy? First, you make confession and repentance a normal part of your spiritual life. You make confession and repentance a normal part of your spiritual life. You keep short accounts with God. You seek to maintain in all things a clear conscience. A clear conscience. Again, holiness begins on the inside. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, again, don't try to jump to all of these. I'm going to mention them quickly. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, For our proud confidence in this, is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Holiness is maintaining a clear conscience. We maintain a clear conscience when we keep short accounts with God, when we are quick to confess our sin and turn from it. 2 Corinthians 7 Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If we confess our sins, John says, first of all, if we say we don't have sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first, in your pursuit of holiness, make sure that you are dealing regularly with sin and turning from it. Number two, how do we grow in holiness? Use self-control and structure your life in a way that avoids sin. Use self-control and structure your life in a way that avoids sin. As a matter of fact, if you remember from our list, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. Self-control. Let me give you just a few passages to to jot down. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Make no provision for the flesh. Give it no opportunity. Remove everything that draws you towards sin. Ask the Holy Spirit, as Psalm 139, to search you and know you and see if there's any hurtful way in you and so that you could cut it off at the root. Hebrews 12, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Jesus, if you're right in Matthew 5, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For this is the will of God, Paul says, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, Structure your life in a way that you remove temptation as much as you can. Structure your life in a way that demonstrates you are pursuing holiness before God and obedience. Now, we've talked about this lots, but that is particularly paramount in light of the internet, smartphones, personal computers, and so on. But it's absolutely paramount that you structure your life in any way that you need to to pursue holiness. We're going to go through these quickly. Number three. First is make confession and repentance a part of your life. Use self-control and structure your life in a way that avoids sin. Number three is this. Accept God's sanctifying providences and discipline in your life. Accept God's sanctifying providences and discipline in your life. And that's huge. And I know from many of you here... Uh, that, is, that is a particularly, that's a place where you are right now. He says this in Hebrews 12, 9 through 10. We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Share in his holiness. There is the kind of discipline that is sometimes called formative, which is just the normal use of trials in our life that God brings to shape us into the image of Christ. There are those that have a punitive sense in this way, not 
Ultimately, Christ has borne our condemnation, but in a way that it's a direct result of sin. And the Lord is disciplining us. In whatever way it comes, we are to understand these as sanctifying providences of God in our life and to receive them as so. That God as a loving and perfect and holy and gracious and kind and merciful Father is producing in us His holiness so that we could share in it and know the joy and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 12, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. He says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He understood that the providence of God in his life that so made him feel his weakness that so brought him low, that so humbled him before God and before men, was in fact a loving expression of the Father for him to keep him from sin so that he would not disqualify himself and lose the joy that he has in Christ. So how, how then do we pursue this holiness? We recognize those things in life that expose our sin and our weaknesses as God's good provinces. We receive them as such and we seek to learn and grow by them. Number four, Do not neglect sincere fellowship, sincere Christian fellowship. That is fellowship that edifies in the truth, fellowship with those who will set an example of obedience, who are influences towards holiness and faith, not influences towards compromise and unholiness, pushing pushing the envelope of freedoms, misunderstanding them, and does not neglect addressing sin when necessary. That's Christian fellowship. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men, listen, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We take sin seriously in one another's life because we know that If sin is allowed to have reign, not only will it destroy the testimony of Christ, not only will it bring discipline upon that brother and ruin their spiritual joy, but it could, in fact, if they go too far, mean that they miss out on God's salvation altogether. And so we deal with sin and we encourage one another in the truth. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 mentions the same. Number five, continue to grow in your knowledge of God through Scripture. Continue to grow of your knowledge of God in Scripture. As that quote illustrated, as we know by experience and as Scripture points us, we learn to hate sin and we learn to love holiness the more we know God, the more we know Him. If you have a small understanding of Scripture, if you have a weak and superficial understanding of Scripture, you will have a weak and a superficial understanding of God and you will have a weak and a superficial understanding of sin. If you want to grow in your hatred of sin and your growing in holiness, you have to know the God who is holy, the Holy One who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So if you want to grow in holiness, if we want to grow into holiness together, we have to be growing in our knowledge of God. He says it this way in 2 Peter, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Look at Ephesians 4, 23, Psalm 19, 119. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So much to say on those, but let me get to this last one. And again, I'm going to have to summarize this, so forgive me if I go too quickly. 
The third point, the third major point is this then. That holiness is a cornerstone of our witness to the world. Holiness is a cornerstone of our witness to the world. Uh, he says in chapter, or verse 9 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We proclaim the Holy One. We proclaim the Holy One who has called us out of darkness to a life of holiness. The gospel out of the lips of Peter at the very beginning of the proclamation of Christ in Acts chapter 2, he says that you may be saved from this perverse generation. It is to believe in Christ, the gospel is, to turn from sin and to trust him, to desire his holiness, his life, his righteousness more than anything else. And the credibility of the church's message is the holiness of her life. The credibility of the church's message, the credibility of your message and my message is the holiness of our life. We are not to influence the world by becoming more like it, but by standing in contrast to it. Not in terms of benign things like dress and so forth, except for skimpy dress, of course. But those things that morally define our culture that are godless, we are to stand in opposition to. So we're not like some of our brethren in the emergent church in certain parts of it, and we all know one name particularly who says, I'm going to reach the culture by swearing like the culture, by talking crudely like the culture does. No, that's foolishness, and it's sin. And in this dear brother's life, that became evident over time. But the point is this, that we influence the culture by standing in contrast to it in terms of its godly ideals and practices. And again, this goes to our entertainment, our use of electronics and the internet and so forth, what we fill our minds with. We don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. So the point simply is this, that we are undergirding our witness of the gospel inasmuch as we display a holiness of our lives. You can jot down Romans 2.24. He says the name of God is blasphemed among the nations. He's talking to Israel because of their sin. No less true for us. Uh, That's why, as a matter of fact, similar to Nadab and Abihu, he put Ananias and Sapphira to death in Acts 5. The church was going great. Everybody's loving it. It's growing. Ananias and Sapphira, they come. They present their offering before the the apostles. Uh, They were lying. God strikes them dead. Why? So that everybody would fear Everybody would fear. And that's what they did. And what happened with the church? It went down the tubes. Nobody started wanting to come to here anymore. Nope, it increased all the more. It increased all the more. The holiness of, our church, of the church undergirds our message. Uh, let me note this as well. The well. And let me just note, that's why we pursue church discipline when necessary. That's why we deal and help one another with sin in our own lives. It's also why the church suffers. It's also why the church suffers. And again, unfortunately, I'm just going to mention this. Uh, The holiness of the church confronts an unholy society, right? The holiness of the church exposes and confronts the unholiness of the world. And so we can expect, and as much as the church is holy in the midst of a perverse generation, it will receive from the world scorn and hatred. Jesus told his disciples If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. 
He had said earlier in John chapter 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil in John chapter 7. And so we who are in Christ have that same ministry ultimately with gentleness, with grace, with humility, but nonetheless, sin is sin. And grace is needed by all because of that sin and the condemnation it brings. And we are the witnesses then of Christ and the message of Christ stands in conflict conflict with an unholy world. Now, again, I'm just going to mention this. I actually wanted to address this more fully. Uh, But some of you are aware of the California bill, AB 2943. Uh, That's been kind of going around the internet. I do want to just mention this because this is a a major major issue. And and how it's been presented by many is that it is a, a, a ban on the Bible, essentially, making it illegal to sell Bibles. That's been one of the, the catchwords. That's not actually technically true. Um, I actually read the bill and then read both sides of it uh, just to, to kind of understand what was being said. Uh, essentially, let me just note this, that it, the bill addresses primarily this. It, it makes illegal any sale or promotion of a service that would engage in reparative uh, counseling, in other words, to try to change someone who has a homosexual orientation or gender identity issues to try to tell them that they are wrong and that they need to change and to charge for that. that, make, it, that the bill says that is illegal. See, uh, California Assemblyman Travis Allen suggested that the bill would ultimately become a ban on the sale of the Bible. And that is... That is definitely true as where it's going, but it's not true as of right now. Although there is at least one ministry that is relocated out of California for fear of possible repercussions. Uh, At the foundation of this bill is this, and let me just note this, and and actually about the first third of the document, is an establishment by the writers of the bill that all gender and sexual orientations issues are, and I quote, part of the natural spectrum of human identity and is not a disease, disorder, or illness. And this is according to contemporary science. So the bill says. Therefore, what they are establishing and what has already been clear is that homosexuality and gender issues are not moral issues. It is merely an inevitable reality of humanity. It certainly isn't sin. And to call it sin in any form according to this logic, is against science and is destructive to the individual. That's what a large part of the bill was establishing. It's destructive to the individual. It causes depression, suicide, and so on and so forth. And so while the bill doesn't immediately give a direct uh, threat to the Bible, it does, it does, and it's very intent. And its intent is... To say that homosexuality is normal, to call it anything else, is in fact a way of persecuting people. And so it's a small jump from that foundation and ideology to banning anything as an affront to the civil rights of the homosexual, those who identify with that movement, of being an affront to them and in fact being illegal. That's where it's going. One of my favorite quotes from John Owen is, sin always aims at the utmost, and that's exactly what's going on. So the point here is this, that the church who is holy in an unholy world can expect them to receive the persecution of the world. The world is not 
in that sense, our friend. We love those who are in the world. But we, but we are, in its eyes, an enemy to humanity. That's why the church has always suffered. Well, the last point, which I won't talk about, is that holiness is the beauty of heaven. It's the beauty of heaven. And as we prepare the Lord's table, we are his people who are saying, we long for this beauty. We long to be with you. We long for the holiness that we will experience in your presence. We are a people who are waiting. We are a people who are hoping. We are a people who are trusting and following you until you would call us home to be with you. And the Lord's table represents that. And it represents why we can say that, namely the death and the resurrection of Christ. So as the men come to hand out the elements, while I pray, uh, take some time to meditate as we take the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, for not leaving us alone. Thank you that you have provided for us a final atonement for sin, for all who trust in you. There is no fear of death. There is no fear of ultimate condemnation that we deserve it because it's been borne by our Savior on the cross in our place, our substance.